All That Breathes profiles two brothers in New Delhi dedicated to saving birds. The film is nominated for an Oscar and is now playing on HBO Max. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. In All That Breathes, we get to know the brothers Nadim and Saud, who founded Wildlife Rescue in Delhi. Their mission is to rescue the birds of prey called the black kite from the hazards of the polluted city. The film visually shifts between images of the majestic birds in the sky to the cramped workspace where the brothers heal injured animals. During the period of filming, Delhi was convulsed by religious violence targeting Muslim communities. Shawnak takes this all in. He spent a whole year of filming before he realized that his first approach wasn't working. He turned to collaborators, including the German cinematographer Benjamin Bernhardt, known for his work with Viktor Kosakowski, and the Danish editor Charlotte Monk Bankston, known for the truffle hunters and the act of killing. Shawnak captures the brothers' avian rescue through patient observation and striking imagery. The dialogues between Nadim, Saud, and their associate Salik are philosophical and funny. The film is a profound contemplation of human interactions with animals embodied in the title All That Breathes. The film won top documentary prizes at Sundance and Cannes and is now nominated for multiple awards, including the Oscar. Shawnak grew up in Delhi. His first film, called Cities of Sleep, is about two men in the megacity preoccupied with getting a good night's sleep. It was released in 2015. I asked Shawnak what he learned from making that film. Well, the thing is that I realized that uh, that film was made on a very shoestring budget. And I realized that the thing that I was interested in really was a kind of, I was interested in a form that was uh, attuned to the philosophical and the conceptual and tried to marshal a kind of cinematic, dreamy, uh, essayistic grammar for it. And in that film, I didn't have the uh, wherewithal or the resources or even the experience really to actually be able to mobilize all those different registers. And and the gap between that film and this, this film was there was a four-year gap in the middle wherein I did my uh, uh, doctoral thesis. And uh, in that, I, I think it, basically what it helped me with is be more, is to be bolder about what I really liked. And what I liked was things that are poetic and lyrical and um, embrace the philosophical uh, frontally. And uh, that's the kind of, and other than that, you know, in a way, if that film was about the horizontal axis, this film is about the vertical axis, right? So that was another way to kind of approach the world. Horizontal axis, meaning people sleeping versus vertical axis of looking at birds in the sky. Yes. Also, I think uh, not just with people sleeping, but also when you look at something through the lens of sleep, the world itself is about being stationary and lateral, right? Uh, whereas the world of the day and the world of the birds is us looking up. So there is a kind of inherent verticality to the to our optic itself. And um, in that sense, it was like an interesting switch from the previous film. So I want to ask you, you said after you made your first film, then you went off and did a doctoral thesis that's not uh, necessarily the normal pathway from uh, for a person going from their first film to their second film. So 
where were you at in uh in in your life that uh, that you wanted to focus on academics after after your first film you see there's no after or before with that because i always continued studying i never stopped studying and uh, these were i mean those two things have sort of been parallel tracks often antithetical to one another and often extremely uh, richly cross pollinating with one another um the i was already always studying throughout but the thing is that after the first film i really you know the first film sort of really like hammered away at me and you know how first films go when you're bereft of good budgets right you're uh, it takes a lot uh, financially and emotionally and uh, so on so i really looked forward to sitting down in a library and writing away and that is what i did but that's uh, it's not because of the experience of the first film those two tracks were parallel to one another and actually um i mean the phd work actually really helped me also you know conceptualize and think of the next project even though they were not directly connected but it gives you a sense of patience with ideas and that's how this film started so how did you come to the brothers in uh in all that breathes and and decide that's what you were going to you know spend all that energy and and focus on on making your second film well i was interested in the air when you live in delhi you can't not be interested in the air you can't be a air agnostic at all <laughs> and uh, i was interested in grayness as a kind of texture of life and uh, conceptually i was interested in human non human relationships and the entanglement or neighborliness between human and non human life and essentially what it all all of it sort of coalesced into this one kind of abstract triangulation between air humans and birds and that's really the playing field that i wanted to um you know stay within and that's how it started and i was gripped by this figure of a small dot in the sky that is the bird falling off this kind of gray expanse of the sky and i literally started with googling where do birds that fall off the sky go to and i that's when i came acro- across the word uh, chanced upon the work of the brothers and it is not just the case that they do singular and remarkable work in saving like 25000 black kites in 15 years but the film was never meant to be like a sweet film about nice people doing good things right that was always what what i wanted to steer clear of and um but the space itself is just so cinematic it reminded me of tarkovsky and uh, bunuel and you know that world of dense cinematic mise-en-scene and um what came to me first before everything was the tone or the shape or the cinematic grammar of the film and that's what really um enrolled me into the film more than anything else So I read that in the first year filming you shot over 100 hours of material that you wound up not using. Can you talk about what you were figuring out in that year? It sounds romantically heroic in hindsight of course, but when it was happening it played out differently. I began <laughs> um uh, essentially shooting handheld and uh, shot for a few months we all shot handheld but but as you know very often when you're holding the camera the material has a tinge of either restlessness or anxiety or urgency none of which were things that i was really going for 
here. And because the characters are such philosophers, I wanted the material to be meditative and contemplative. And um, therefore, it required to be not just on a tripod, but on a slider or a dolly or a track or a crane, you know, those kinds of the usual toys of fiction. And immediately I realized that was obviously above my pay grade as a cinematographer myself, well above. And um, the, the I there was no way I could use the material from the first year, therefore, to use stuff, you know. It had to, it either is the caliber of Benz and reduced shooting, or it's not, right? I can't come in with my raw... Uh, you know, grungy shooting style and inserted in the middle of the fluid takes that they were taking. So it had to be all or nothing and, and therefore it had to be nothing. So you wound up bringing in the cinematographer Ben Bernhard uh, to, to work on it. Um, how did you choose him and, and how did you work with him? Just cinematographically, I'd never seen some of the caliber of shooting that I'd seen in some of Viktor Kosakovsky's films. Actually, uh, more than uh, even films like Aquarella, or I, there's a film called Vivan Las Antipodas, which is an incredibly filmed uh, movie. It's like I've never seen a doc that well. I've just never seen panning like that, you know? So I wanted to have, I really, panning was very important to me in this film. So I needed to get somebody who would not do a kind of technical pan from point A to point B but do a pan that was truly motivated. Let me ask you about one of those pans that really stood out to me every time I watch the film, stands out to me. Uh, the shot is tracking over castaway garbage uh, that's wet and populated by centipede-like insects. And as the camera passes over a puddle, we see a reflection of an airplane in the sky overhead. Uh, can you talk about getting that shot? Well, that's not a pan. That's a tilt. Okay. Uh, uh, but I, I mean, the film has a lot of pans and some tilts. Uh, but uh, tilts became a kind of thing that we arrived at later. But uh, I really wanted something, you know, a good, genuinely cinematic pan is a rare thing. Because usually when filmmakers, like when in a lot of films, you can tell that they do point A, point B, the focus puller is pulling and that's it. So it's a mechanical thing the technical pan then but a pan which you know the wind is blowing there are sounds that are coming but for the camera to in its intuitive rhythms and cadences be able to be able to record to respond to that is really not it's a thing because you know it's not a thing of the eye and the brain it's a thing of your thighs and your arms and those are things that it's like a sketching artist you can't just like you can't be intelligent to sketch well you're your neuromuscular system has to be trained. Similarly with good DPs, you know, you need that kind of skill. And Ben really has that kind of a thing. With that shot, like the shot that you mentioned, etc. Of course, there you keep doing these pants and tilts 25 times. And at some point, life rewards you with accidents and, you know, magical things. So similarly with so many, like, you know, the bit where the turtle is uh, walk, it sort of clambers through traffic through trash and you can see the traffic in the background and it looks as, as if it's looking at the traffic zipping past those are moments that only come by rarely you know sometimes of course it's pure luck like Salik's glasses being taken away 
but above and beyond that it's like a, you have to keep doing it for animals to which are obviously completely disobedient to what your designs are uh, to finally reward you with moments of complete uh, magical contingency i've heard you put a real emphasis that you weren't setting out to make a, a nature documentary um can you talk about that distinction what you know what it was that you were trying to do in uh outside of that essentially the thing is that i knew that there was a real risk of this becoming a kind of um uh conventional and i very much wanted to not be there it, it i have no experience in it nor was it my ambition um to make like a regular nature doc um the reason being that i was as interested in the emotional inner lives of the brothers and the political um uh, fabric of uh, the city that was very turbulent right outside their houses really so in order to be able to uh, incorporate all these often disparate um impulses you need to not be hemmed in by one genre based uh, conventional code and uh, of course the thing is if you start by saying i'm not doing this i'm not doing this i'm not doing this it's not going to be all of those things but it's going to be a bit of all of those things as well and that is what happens so you take in you sort of interpolate a lot of those things as well uh, but i knew that i did not want to do something that looked uh, familiarly television like that's the thing i was most petrified of so while you're filming um new delhi was being convulsed by violence against muslim communities um and i wonder how you respond to that i i think when you're making a film project and then something dramatic is happening as dramatic as as riots in your city uh it can um be discombobulating um yes i mean the thing is that the decision really that we had to arm wrestle with is we had start we had set out to make an ecological film and while there was such tumult outside the convulsions were not those that were germane to the intrinsic lives of the brothers because while they're knowledgeable they're not overtly political beings and you have to respect the integrity of the lives that you're shooting at the same time so what we did was that we sort of zeroed in on the aesthetic of the leak so to say which is that the outside world often sort of leaks in a character goes to the balcony you hear the audio of a protesting crowd or you a character is watching the video of heinous violence on his phone and you only hear the audio of it so the outside world sort of hemorrhages in through the acoustic through sounds and echoes and murmurs and stuff so um, th- we thought it had to be therefore the presence of the uh, unrest or the socio political had to be oblique at best like tangential you know and uh, that's what where we kept it it's something where you sense it as um, you know it's in the minor key and you sense it as a kind of wallpaper that sometimes articulates itself but the whole film in a way is a kind of waxing and waning of the foreground and the background be it the background animals or the background political strides or all of that but it you know it's like real life sometimes the outside world jumps in 
and sometimes it's just a dull din in the distant background this film is made with collaborators from many different countries your editor charlotte monk bengtson is from denmark how did you choose to work with her i loved the editor of the truffle hunters and then i realized that she had also got act of killing so of course i mean she knew her way around the edit so um uh, i wanted somebody who has a different style from mine and i tend to be very top heavy and cerebral and um her style i realized in the first conversation is very she is more interested in emotional edit and more than what the brain says what the gut says and i was very i'd never thought of the edit with this degree of a sense of play and you know with her it's a dance the edit she, she was a professional dancer till fairly late in her life and um so it was like that's why i approached her and that's how the style sort of organically developed it was a completely uh, style different style from mine that's so interesting to me because uh, i watching uh all the breeze i wouldn't think of you as someone who is a uh it leans into the talk heavy uh filmmaking top heavy as in where i top as in where i think of um what one shot after the other means more than what it feels and uh i would be too focused on the semiotic meaning of it whereas she would talk about the affective or sensorial imports of shots and that's something that i was uh, like so well never talk because uh, i've i hate talking head interviews and unless they're really needed and all of that um so um, i only meant that her style is a of a different kind you know like it's a kind of mood based feeling based edit which i only had the privilege of learning um off from her it takes a lot of courage to work with someone who comes from a, who approaches film in a, in a in a completely different way uh from you was uh, as you were working with her um what was that like well uh, her seniority helps because half the time <laughs> you're disagreeing you're just like well she knows what she's doing uh often been at the oscars you know like you sort of say okay that sort of that helps uh but i mean jokes apart the um everything in this film was anyway like it felt like jumping off a cliff even calling ben who had his own distinct style um uh, felt like you know all of it the film is was really like a fever dream and you had these people with major voices coming and their voices and mine sort of mingled and uh, mutated into something else um and that was really the most fun part of the film because it really then ceases to be uh just your own and becomes really like a, a truly um amorphous beast of its own let me ask you about uh, another contributor uh to the, to the creative effort on this which is uh, the composer Roger Gula um how did you uh choose him and and work with him that was also actually uh, uh monumentally simple because he was uh, 
um, Charlotte's friend and batchmate from film school and she was showing me different samples and she said, by the way, have you heard this guy? And I realized that I, you know, one of the things I wanted was that this had to start off as a fairy tale and then feel like a fairy tale gone dark. And I like the idea of working with electronic distortion to arrive at that. Because when you work with strings or keys or any such, you end up with syncopated beats. And the minute you have syncopated beats, you tend to start edit, to cut the film in the beat, in the rhythm of the beats. No matter what you do, your cutting beat is essentially somehow influenced by the beats of the music. And what a extended, uh, you know, undulating kind of a electronic wave does is that it has a different experience of time. So durational or temporal experiences change when you have a stretched out kind of a single note electronic distor distortion, which I liked as a style. And that's how our, our Rogers and my uh, collaboration started. I want to ask, it, over the several years that uh, it took to make this film, what was it that kept you going through the, the harder times? Um, you know, the sense of gravity, uh, because you've jumped off a cliff and you just go on because you've started something. And uh, more than that, I really, like, the truth is I was very excited in uh, the film's language. I just was fully... Um, you know, like I was very excited to try and put out this form of shooting animals and like, you know, the animals and the political story and the brother story and the ecological story, all of it together. The form of it, I was very, very excited by, but also the responsibility of the crew, you know, and the responsibility to the characters. And, you know, you started something and you have to finish it. And the film, you know, you, for those three years, you, you see the world through the demon eyes of the film. And uh, there's no outside then, it's all inside. So what has it been like for the figures in the film, the brothers uh, Nadim and Saud, um, to have their story out in the world? Well, they're thrilled that they're getting to travel so much. As you know, that they've been, you know, they all came to Cannes. They, uh, Nadim has now gone to as many film festivals uh, almost as I have. He recently came to New York again, first for Cinema Eye, before that for the Film Forum opening all of that. So he was, they're thrilled. Uh, there's a lot of media spotlight on their work. But also, I mean, uh, well, very kindly, uh, Tanglebank Studio have decided to fund their um, uh, hospital for a year to come. So they're thrilled. But of course, there can't be a kind of simple-minded, um, it's not like a one fell swoop change that a film can inaugurate in the lives of its characters. So there's, I would say it's alleviated their material circumstances somewhat. Uh, and hopefully it provides them with an oasis of some degree of relief. But I try and be careful to not overstate what a film can do um, to them because it's important to not overpromise. This film feels to me like it's part of a new wave of Indian documentary. Last year, Writing with Fire was nominated for an Oscar. And the Toronto Film Festival debuted While We Watched about the Indian journalist Ravish Kumar. This year, one of the Oscar nominees for documentary shorts is The Elephant Whisperer, and that's only to pick a few. Do you get the sense in India that there's a new energy around documentary filmmaking? Well, there's undeniably a new energy in that, uh, you know, like, and it's, I think a sort of moment started with a film called An Insignificant Man, 
made by um, also the director uh, of uh, Vinay, who made the Ravish documentary and Kushbu. Uh, but uh, since then, there have been uh, quite a few films. And even now, I hear that the films right now, Shimoy's film is going to Berlin. And, uh, you know, a, a film just premiered at Sundance uh, called Against the Tide. So there, there's definitely a moment um, which, and I think a lot of it has to do with pitching forums or incubation labs like Dock Edge in Calcutta, which familiarize, at least to me at any rate, for um, with the grammar of creative documentaries and somewhat with what where the resources are who to talk to and all of that um and i think generally this has been a good moment in terms of um films that try to deep dive into that kind of a grammar uh, are finding um uh, interested viewers outside having said that it's important to not minimize the work of previous generations of documentary filmmakers you know there have been people who've like uh, been all our heroes but have had to work with far tougher circumstances, really. But yes, it is something is turning a corner, something is changing, something, I mean, um, in the Indian media, I often get asked questions about the golden age of Indian documentary, which I have to say, I find, I, I cringe with a little because it's too early to call it really an age. Um, uh, three years don't form an age. But uh, uh, there is definitely something that is um, undeniably changing and it's very exciting of course and three years of uh, consecutive Sundance prizes that's not a joke in thinking about making a film you could have been you could have prepared yourself per, for production and could have prepared yourself uh, for editing not many filmmakers come prepared to spend this year that you've been spending taking the film to festivals talking about it answering similar questions uh, uh, again and again. Um, what has that been like uh, for you? It's both things. Um, there is, you gain a lot and you lose. Uh, what you lose is energy and you're, of course, endlessly exhausted. I have never led, I've never slept as many consecutive nights in hotels. I've never taken as many flights and I've never felt as unrooted uh, uh, from one spot but having said that I've also made great friends I've also come to meet filmmakers I admire I've come to meet you know like I I, I remember seeing Q&A's of you years ago so none of the, this stuff is uh, uh, all of this stuff feels like something that one it feels very rewarding and I've seen films uh, with filmmakers and all of that right so um, it is it feels very discombobulating of course, but at the same time, you feel you have uh, been rewarded with friendships with a tribe of people that you didn't know existed. So you feel very enriched in life and you feel like the fuel required to soldier on for forthcoming projects is very high because both in terms of resources and networks, but also more than anything, friendships, because, you know, like verite filmmaking can be paralytically lonely. and to know that there are kindred spirits out there and you know so it's neighborliness in more than one ways so that feels like quite a life raft and uh like that feels like i i draw great sustenance from it i want to 
thank Sean Xen for speaking with me. His film All That Breathes is now playing on HBO Max. I hope you'll follow our Instagram at Pure Nonfiction. Throughout February, we have special guests taking over the feed from festivals around the world, Helsinki, Berlin, Montana, Dublin, and Burkina Faso. Thanks to our team, series producer Hannah Nordenswan and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Raphael Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can read our show notes and sign up for our newsletter at Pure nonfiction.net. Mm-hmm.